Uh, let's settle in. Let's ask God to bless our time. Father, we thank you for this morning. What a beautiful, wonderful day you've given us. Lord, this is the day you've made. Let us rejoice in it. And Lord, just give us the fuel and the passion necessary to make sense of life, the things that you've called us to do, the, the lives that we're living. Lord, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. And Lord, we need direction. I, I feel like David, Lord, he said his foot almost slipped. Lord, he, he was in unbelief until he walked into the house of God and everything made sense again. Lord, bring sense to life, the scriptures. Uh, teach us as you always do in Jesus' name. Amen. Proverbs 24, verse 30 says, I went by the field of the lazy man, the slothful, and by the vineyard of the man devoid of understanding, and there it was, all overgrown with thorns, and its surface was covered with nettles or weeds, and the wall was broken down. When I saw it, I considered it well. I pondered it. I looked and perceived instruction. This field preached to this man. And then here was the instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And so shall your poverty come on you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. The writer of Proverbs is Solomon. Solomon in Proverbs is not writing doctrine. You need to understand that. Doctrine sounds lofty. Uh, People will talk about how they teach doctrine. Listen, doctrine just means teaching. Doctrine is teaching concerning the weightier articles of our faith, justification, salvation, righteousness, prophecy. Those are all things you can take to the bank. They are always true. That's not what Solomon's writing in Proverbs. Solomon here is writing about wisdom. It's a Hebrew word, hoikma, which means skill. He's giving us the skills necessary to live life on this earth. Skills that you and I need so desperately in this age if we're going to glorify God and uh, be successful around others. And so we need these skills. And you might say, well, Pastor Bob, wait a second. My parents gave me skills. I go to fine schools. I feel like I have a lot of skills for living life. Here's the difference. Solomon writes in Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. So we have this sense now that this instruction comes from God. When God's in the equation, life begins to make sense. And so Solomon now is giving us wisdom concerning our activities, attitudes, and actions which will enrich our souls and show us the activity of God in this world. Contrastly, there are many Proverbs that are soul killers. The activities and things we find ourselves in that will deaden our souls, that will block the voice of God from us. And that's not the path we want to go. Solomon, in all his wisdom, went down the wrong path. And if you want to see what the wrong path looks like, read the book of Ecclesiastes, where he said, my work never made me happy, my relationships never made me happy, sex never made me happy. Solomon said it was all vanity and chasing after the wind. So you don't want to end up that way, and neither do I. We want to have an awakened soul, understanding the activity of God in our lives. Solomon became king in Israel probably in his early 20s. And one day at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon. He said, Solomon, one request and I will grant it unto you. And he said, Lord, my request is that I might understand how to lead your people Israel. I am young. I don't understand justice or equity. And 1 Kings 3 says the speech pleased the Lord. 
uh, that Solomon had asked for this. He didn't ask for riches or the death of his enemies or long life. And so God gave him a wise and understanding heart, and he became the wisest man to ever live. The Bible says none had come before him, none would come after him, and that people from all over the world came to hear of his wisdom. He was mightier than the men of Egypt, mightier than the men of the East, and then it names all the nations that surrounded Israel. Solomon was wiser than any man on earth. Uh, We're told that he wrote 3,000 Proverbs, 1,005 Psalms, four books of the Bible. Uh, I'm going to put 1 Kings 4 on the screen for you. Uh, Just a a few verses here. Uh, This was Solomon's portion for one day. So in his palace, this was the provision for just one day. Talks about barrels and barrels of weed and flour and oil. But look at this, a hundred sheep, a hundred deer, a hundred gazelles, a hundred geese. No vegans in Solomon's palace in that day, right? 40,000 chariot stalls, 40,000 stalls of horses. He was not only wise politically, financially, theologically, he studied horticulture, zoology. He looked at insects, that's why he could say, observe the ant who stores up in the summer for lean times. When the queen of Sheba came to Jerusalem and visited the palace of Solomon, she said, until this time I have heard of your wisdom and now I see it. And that's so very important. Because people that are wise, it can be seen. It comes out of us. You you just know it when you're around it. Now, I gave you that extensive background on Solomon because it makes this parable even more powerful. Solomon, who, by the way, had a Bible. He didn't have your Bible, but he had the first five books of Moses. Kings were to record the Bible every day. They were to write the law of God. Solomon had access to literature. He had access to almost everything you would need to grow in life. And he does something here in Proverbs 24 that 90% of us in this room fail to do. And he stops by a field. And he ponders it. He considers it. An ordinary field, an ordinary day. And he looks at this field and it's overgrown. The wall's broken down. You've seen places like this. And the wisest man in the world, listen, received instruction. See, that's wisdom. Wisdom isn't, I haven't arrived, I know everything. Wisdom is, there's always something to be learned. Leaders are curious by nature. They're always taking things apart. They're always looking at things. They're always learning. This actually happened to me last week. I was having a bad day and a half. You ever know what that's like, right? It's just bad news, bad things are going on. About a day and a half, I can feel the anxiety in my body. You ever feel that? And uh, I had to stop by my house midday because I forgot something. And I have a long driveway, and I drove down my driveway, and I saw a dead squirrel. And I thought, wow, somebody in my family actually backed over this squirrel. So I was getting my trash cans, and I came up to this squirrel, and it was laying on its back like this, just looking up. And there were no tire marks. So I thought, ah, nobody ran over this squirrel. This squirrel, I had about a 50-foot pine tree there, was probably trying to get a nut or go a little higher and fell backwards and... uh, That's all she wrote, right? And uh, I'm getting my trash cans, and I look at that squirrel, and I just stopped for a moment and actually felt anxiety leave my body. I thought, someone is having a worse day than I am. (laughs) All right? You know, God couldn't get through to me through the Bible or anything else, so the squirrel actually preached the message to me. (laughs) The point here is that when Solomon looked at that vineyard, some, some of the dots began to connect. 
Because Israel was God's vineyard. Jesus told parables over and over again how Israel was God's vineyard. They were to produce a harvest. They were to be the light to the other nations. You are God's field, the Bible says. Everyone in this room has the resources and talents necessary in life to produce something. See, that's the idea. The ground has the nutrients, the soil. It's nothing that we do per se. The soil's already there, but it has to be tilled. It has to be managed. It has to be worked. You're God's field. And when Solomon looked at this field, he said it was the field of a lazy man. That's an indictment of character. He said the field was of a man devoid of understanding. That's an indictment of character. In the athletic world, sometimes you look at an athlete and you'll say, wow, they have all these attributes, but I just want to let you know they're a little lazy. That's an indictment of character. And so when we look at this, Solomon understood something. We need to grasp this this morning. He understood that this field properly managed with diligence and hard work would produce a vineyard or an olive grove that would be profitable and would bless many. There would be a family here that would be set up for generations What Solomon knew was this, that the payoff was huge. And that's what we need to grasp. Hard work and diligence on this field, the payoff was huge. Contrastly, Solomon also knew there was a man, a family, a subset of people out there who were in want and need and probably crisis mode, right? It says here, your poverty comes on you like an armed man. It's a crisis. You think it just happened now. And Solomon said, there's a group of people out there that are impoverished in crisis mode, and someone's going to have to bail them out. Slothfulness, laziness is a soul killer. That's the series we're in, soul killers. This will deaden your soul. It'll give you a poverty mentality. People that have a poverty mentality are envious of other people when they look at their fields. They start to compare themselves. They even start to doubt God's provision and his blessing. The thing I'm trying to get through to you in this series is there's a God that wants to bless you in bunches. He really does. Deuteronomy 28 told Israel, these are the blessings that will overtake you. That God is a blessing God. Spirit, soul, and body, you can live with an awakened soul and an awareness of your world. And like this field, and we've been looking at Psalm 1, you can become a tree planted by living waters, bearing fruit in your season, everything you do prospering. This is what God wants to do. The question is, how does God do it? One of the things that I have done for many years is observed people. Solomon observed this field. I've observed people, people I work with, people I know, uh, people I consider successful. That doesn't mean monetarily. Uh, One of the areas I read widely in is biographies. I like to get into somebody's inner world. What makes them tick? How do they conduct themselves? What are their practices? Uh, How do they handle their kids, their, their family? When I read about people in ministry, what's their walk with God, their spiritual disciplines? I'm a better man, father, dad, and pastor today from all the people that I've studied who I think are successful people and people I want to emulate. Contrastly, all the people that I know that struggle always seem to be behind the curve and are always in crisis mode all lack the one character trait we're going to talk about today. And it's discipline. We're going to talk about discipline today. It is a character trait that God wants to build in each and every one of us. Now, this isn't mechanical. It's not something maybe your parents taught you. This is something we can all get better at and need to get better at. 
The Bible says that the grace of God has appeared. Thank God for that. We're all grace junkies in this room, right? Calvary Chapel, we love grace. We love grace because we can dress down on Sunday morning. We don't need to wear a suit and tie. You can come in sweats, baseball hats, whatever you want. But grace isn't sloppy. Grace has appeared, listen, to teach us how to live righteously and soberly in this age. To work your field so that God will bring a harvest. So this morning I want to give you four practices of disciplined people that I've observed. And if you can learn one or two of these and put it in your tool bag, I think it will serve you well. Number one is delayed gratification. Now before you think, oh, I've heard this in the secular world, listen. The fruit of the Spirit, one of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Self-control. At conversion, you were given access to the Word of God and the flow of the Spirit in your life. So self-control is now a fruit of your spirit. It's not something that is natural. But when you're in the flow of God's spirit, joy, peace, long-suffering, and self-control become a part of the fabric of who you are. Uh, Delayed gratification is choosing what's difficult now so you can enjoy the payoff down the road. We understand this with diet and fitness. But let me tell you a story when I was 14 years old. I attended Jimmy Lynham's basketball camp at St. Jude's University. And uh, Jimmy Lynham got about 100 of us together, all the campers, and he said, here's what's going to happen to you guys. 20 years from now, you're all going to be sitting on bar stools telling the guy next to you why you never made the team, never played in college, never excelled, okay? And here's what you're going to tell them. I had a bad coach, bad system, bad school, and the referees screwed me over, right? Now, 26 years later, and I don't sit on bar stools, but I listen to guys, and you, you, you'd be shocked how right Coach Lynham was. You know, guys who blame almost everybody but themselves. You need the right talent, but what Jimmy Lynham was saying, you need discipline. Uh, I can look back and say, you know what? I had talent. I was disciplined. I loved to play the game. I just didn't take the 300 extra shots I should have taken every day. I didn't work as hard as everybody else. I wasn't disciplined as I should have been in that area uh, to garner the results I was looking for. Delayed gratification is the key to life. It's something that the man in Proverbs 24 did not have a part of his life. He wasn't wise in this area. How do I know? Because Solomon said the cause of that field wasn't a tragic accident. It wasn't a lack of resources. It was a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands. Now, does God not want us to rest and take a vacation? Does he always want us to be working on our skills? No, please don't misunderstand. What Solomon is fighting against here and what we need to understand is the danger of incrementalism in our lives. You all know what entropy is, right? Second law of thermodynamics. Everything in life is moving towards disorganization and chaos. So you all understand that? Homeowners should really understand that, okay? I was at my home on a day off on a Monday one time. had a cup of coffee. I sat on a rocker, and there was a woodpecker upside down on my fence just gnawing at my fence as long as I watched him. And uh, 
I'm thinking, yeah, I get it. I go to work. I'm doing what I'm trying to do. And everything's working against me while I'm gone. You know, one day I'm going to come and that fence is going to be broken down. And I think, how did that happen? So, so you homeowners get the deal, right? It's all going towards chaos unless you intervene, right? It's the same thing in your life. You put anything on autopilot in your life. You cut a few corners here. You, you fudge a little here. You take your eye off the road here. And little by little by little, you're going to find yourself in a crisis. Uh, every once in a while, somebody will talk to me, Pastor Bob, you won't believe what's going on. I was sick. My car broke down. I lost my... It'll take me through like a Job story. Now, understand, those things happen, okay? Uh, that's why Job's in the Bible. But almost every time somebody takes me through that set of circumstances, they always tell me it's spiritual warfare. Now, maybe it is. Most of the time, I actually wonder... Did we just get negligent in four areas and then the roof caved in? Like, I didn't get my oil changed for four years. I didn't change the tires, never took it to a mechanic. But the day it broke down happened to be the day I had the flu and the kids were... Do you understand what I'm saying? Little by little by little, one day you're going to be in a crisis. Your poverty, it's going to come like an armed man when you don't expect it. Probably the greatest illustration of a man who couldn't delay gratification in the scriptures is Samson. Judges 14 to 16, we're going to look at him when we get to the book of Judges. Judges 14 said Samson went down to Gaza and that was the trajectory of his life. Next to Solomon, he was probably the most gifted man to ever walk the earth. But he squandered it. He couldn't delay gratification. He made his parents who raised him as a Nazarite Go down and get him a harlot. He had to have Delilah. He had to have everything. And he became a grinder in a mill. His eyes poked out. Half the man he was. It's not what God wants for us. We need to delay gratification. We need to delay it in our financial areas, relational world. Uh, how about in our spiritual world? Everybody here got an insert when you came in, kind of a diagnostic on where you are on the continuum in about four different areas in discipline. What about your spiritual life? There are these things called the spiritual disciplines. Now, Christians think spiritual and discipline, they, don't, they think they're an oxymoron, right? They're not. See, the time to pray fast and cry out to God is not when you're in a crisis. Now, it is, I guess, if you're in a foxhole and you're in a crisis, you should but it's something we should do when times are ordinary, cultivating a relationship with God. So when we do get in a crisis or real spiritual warfare or a trial, uh, we can make it. But these are things that we have to do up front because the payoff is huge. Okay, second one, very important, right on the heels of it, is advanced decision making. Disciplined people don't make Rash decisions. They make decisions in advance. Uh, currently, I'm in a book project that I'm very excited about, and I'll share more with you later. I built a team of people here, and then someone from out of state. We're very excited about what God could do through this. My daughter, Amanda, she's my oldest, is an editor in Philadelphia. She has a master's degree in writing. And for Father's Day, she gave me several books on writing, chock full of tips on how to be a better writer and and all kinds of advice. The more I read on writing, you know what the most common tip is? 
Show up to the same desk at the same time every day. Make an advanced decision that you're going to write every single day. So we have this idea that creative people just have this muse. They write songs or, or they play sports or they do what they do. And we think it just comes to them. No, you know, except for Alan Iverson, practice really does help us in what we do, right? It really does. And most people you think aren't diligent really are. Now, when we look at discipline, it's one thing to be disciplined. It's another thing to understand time. I'm teaching a class on Wednesday night, and our class is called Wired. So we're trying to tell people, here's the personality God gave you. Uh, here's the way you were wired. And then now we're trying to make it more practical, saying we all get 24 hours in a day. How do we maximize time? So I want to give you a little snippet of this because it's in our culture here at Calvary, and our staff talks about it a lot. Uh, if you think of your time in four quadrants, uh, think of quadrant one as urgent and important. Whatever you do, just think of what's urgent and important. Just to understand the illustration, in my world, what's urgent and important is what I'm doing right now, okay? I got to do this every Sunday and a lot of Wednesdays. Why is it urgent? Because Sundays come really quick. Why is it important? Because you guys keep showing up, okay? So I got to have something to say. So it's very urgent, it's very important. Quadrant two is where I should be doing a significant amount of my work. Quadrant two is still important. It's just not urgent. In other words, it's important, but it's not Sunday. It's important for another time. I'll give you an example. Last week with sermon preparation and all things I need to do, uh, I had to meet with our tour guide who's going to help us go to Greece and um, Italy next November. Okay? Bible tours are something that I love to do. People make lifelong friendships, and learning of the Bible goes way up. But I can't wait a month before we get on that plane to plan that trip. So i got to do it now. It's important. It's just not urgent. But I've got to get time over here. But what I want to talk to you about is quadrant three. That's what's urgent, but it's not important. And uh, I'm going to tell you what's urgent and not important in your world. Email. Okay? Someone thinks it's urgent, the person who wrote it to you. But it's not important. Now, it may be important, but it's not important right now. See, they intruded on your life. They really did. It's kind of like an interruption. Somebody walks into your, you know, you're in the middle of something. Email's an intrusion in your life. You have to be the master of it. I'm not sure the greatest practice in the world is to look at your email as soon as your day starts. Uh, me looking at email Monday morning is not a good practice. There's going to be a few people mad at me, a few people wondering why we're not doing I don't need to start my day with something that's not important to me at that time. Does everybody understand that? Okay. So, let's move to something really important. Your marriage. Okay? Key relationships. Uh, couples do this differently. It's not the same for all. Well, what about a date night? Now, I would never ask how many people had a date night this week, okay? Because the date night is important, isn't it? You and your spouse need to go out, get away from the screaming kids, remember who each you are, uh, that you love each other, it needs to be right, right? Like, that's really important. Problem is, it's not urgent. Some people think it's not urgent, they can wait 20 years and reconnect, okay? 
That's not, that's not good advanced decision planning. All right? My wife and I, every two to three years, have gone on a marriage retreat. I remember early in our marriage we did this, and the company where I worked, everybody thought our marriage was on the rocks. Like, oh, Bob's going to a marriage weekend. I'm like, no, I'm going now while it's good because I want the payoff to be down the road. I try and read a book on marriage every year. Raising children. This is interesting. I've shared this with you before in the family series. I will have a teenager for 19 consecutive years. 19. Now, that wasn't great advanced planning, but that's just the way it happened. And God had something to do with how that all happened. I'm sure I did, but, you know, God has the field. Anyway... 19 consecutive years, and then I, I wrote this down. I have, pay, have been paying tuition in one form or another for 22 years. And I thought about that. I thought about when our kids were really small. We valued education. We've done public school, homeschooling, Christian schooling, but whatever we've done, we've paid tuition for 22 consecutive years. We did this whether we had the money or not. It was an early decision because we were looking for the payoff later. Had we not made that decision, I'm sure we could have had a sure home, new cars, a boat, and a host of other things. And if you had those things, that's okay. All I'm saying is we made an advanced decision. It was our decision. It doesn't have to be yours. Because we look for the payoff down the road. How are you all tracking here? You really need to think this through. Really do. Jesus said... If you want to build a city, you count the cost. If you go to war against 20,000, you better make sure you have the capability. This is a big part of discipline. And contrastly, the payoff is devastating if you don't think these through in advance. Number three is diligence. It's closely tied to discipline. Look up on the screen. Proverbs 20:11, and I chose the NIV because I like its wording. Those who work their land will have abundant food, but those who chase fantasies have no sense. The Bible has a lot to say about money. If I was to ask a person on the street who had never read the Bible, what do you think the number one thing the Bible has to say about money? They'd say that you have to give it all away, right? Because that's what a lot of religion has done. The number one thing the Bible has to say is how money comes to you. Now, this is rocket science. So you'll be glad you came this morning. The number one way you will always obtain money is by working for it. Isn't that amazing? That's just brilliant, right? God's brilliant in this one. The Bible talks about earning money, investing money, and then yes, it's better to give than receive. You know, there's a spiritual principle of giving and receiving, and we all know that. Work is good for us. Adam worked in paradise, right? He had a blue-collar job. He tilled the ground. He had a white-collar job. He named all the animals, right? The Ten Commandments, you probably have overlooked this. The Ten Commandments say, six days you shall do what? Yeah, that's a command, right? Six days you work, and then there's a day of rest. Work helps us provide for the people we love. It gives us routine. Uh, The satisfaction of a job well done. You know, God looked at every day of creation and said it was good, and then he rested on the seventh day, I believe, to just look at his creation. And this is where I'm envious of contractors. You know, the guys that are carpenters or landscapers or painters, you know, they do a job and they, just, they can just bask in it. Look, you know, here's the before and after pictures. Ministry's not like this. Ministry's like putting seed in the ground. And uh, you don't see the fruit for a long, long time. 
Uh, every once in a while, I go home on a Sunday, put my head on a pillow and say, maybe something good happened today. But it's usually way down the road. Um, I'm going to spend some time here because we're going to spend a third of our life here. And I know you struggle here. What changed things for me is when I saw my work and vocation as worship. Okay? And I'm going to get to this, what I mean by this in a minute. Martin Luther said, whether you wash dishes or preach for a living, if you do it with the same heart under the Lord, you get the same reward. I want to read you this little snippet from Peter Drucker. He was an a Russian immigrant, the father of modern management, wrote over a hundred books. He said, history's great achievers, Napoleon, Da Vinci, Mozart, have always managed themselves. That in large measure is what makes them great achievers. But they are rare exceptions, so unusual both in their talents and accomplishments to be considered outside the boundaries of ordinary human existence. You know what Drucker was saying? No one in this room is in that category, okay? I'm not there, you're not there. Okay, so here's the drill for the rest of us. Most of us, even those with us with modest endowments, will have to learn to manage ourselves. Now, there's probably a lot of people in this room thinking, geez, you know, there's some people I manage that are difficult, right? And you go home and talk about it with your wife and over dinner. Listen, you are the most difficult person you will ever manage. Do you realize that? The hardest person in this room to manage is you. And I'm the hardest person for me. We will have to learn to develop ourselves, place ourselves where we can make the greatest contribution, and stay mentally alert and engaged during a 50-year working life, which means knowing how and when to change the work we do. Most people think they know what they're good at, they're usually wrong. More often, people know what they're not good at, and even then, they're more wrong than right. And yet, a person can only perform from strength. One cannot build performance on weakness, let alone something he cannot do at all. And here's why I read you this. Before the modern age, if your father was a farmer, you were a farmer. Yeah, there would be a Shakespeare every now and then, but, but you were basic, you had a lot in life. That, that's just the way it was. Only the Hebrew scriptures give us this egalitarian idea that Ben Franklin talked about, that we could be anything we want to be, you know, this American dream. But it's rooted in the scriptures. You know, set a child on the path he or she should go. And that's not just religious training. That means find the, help them find their passion and, and they'll, they'll do well there. They, they won't turn from it. I bring all this up because when I graduated college, I began to work for the Boeing company. That's an engineering company, by the way. Um, I was the proverbial circle in a square peg in a round hole. All right? You know, I probably should have been a coach, a teacher, a salesman, uh, engineer, probably the farthest thing from my makeup, right? And here I am in a cubicle with engineers, pocket protectors, white shirts, black pants, uh, just the opposite fit for me. And I love engineers, and I've told you that guys that before. Um, it took me years to understand why God had me there. And I became very grateful because I could raise a family and I had a nine to five job so I could do ministry after work and I pastored this church for four years while I worked there. What God drilled home to me was Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3.22 where it says, bond servants, obey your masters in all things according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. 
And whatever you do, do it heartily with all your might as unto the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you're receiving the reward. That was a game changer for me. It can be a game changer for you. Maybe you don't like your job. Maybe you don't like the calling you're in. See, I could look back now and say, I know why God placed me there for 12 years. Because he knew I was going to pastor one day, and he wanted me to work beside people who do what you all do for a living. To hear their pain and their marriages and all they're going through, that one day I can minister to them. And what I'm trying to say is, God doesn't waste anything. If we could see our vocation as I'm working unto the Lord and it's for him, God will promote you. That's why humility was the first character trait we talked about. Because if I humble myself before the Lord and understand he'll raise me up, God will eventually get you where you need to be. The field has all the nutrients, resources necessary to produce a harvest, but the ground's got to be tilled. Somebody's got to plant seed, pull up weeds, put a fence and protection around it. There has to be diligence in this area. And again, you're going to work for a third of your life. It's going to bring God glory. It's going to provide for your family, and we have to be diligent. Let's put that verse up on the screen again, Proverbs 12, 11. Those who chase fantasies have no sense. Okay? Uh, those who play the lottery have no sense. Those who gamble have no sense. Those who are involved in get-rich-quick schemes have no sense. Those who think they're going to think and grow rich have no sense. Those who think they're going to work a four-hour work week have no sense. Now, I didn't say a word of that. Solomon did. Right? There's always a book out there. There's always something at the grocery store. I see him, you see him, right? Pull off this tab and in 30 days you'll be retired in Florida, right? It's not God's plan for your life. It doesn't work that way, okay? But there are people that chase fantasies. Now, I'm not talking about entrepreneurship. I'm not talking about a venture in faith. I'm not talking about somebody who wants to be an actor or a singer. That's not a fantasy. That's viable, but I know this much, I know that every venture in faith, every entrepreneurial risk, and every person that had a dream of being an actor or something we think is lofty, had A, a backup plan, and a strategic plan to get that done. Okay? So I'm not against any of those things. This was a venture in faith. Calvary Chapel. But there, there were strategic plans and the idea that God is in this. Okay? Um... So you've got to figure all that out. But the main thing God has called us to is diligence. Not Facebook's having their IPO and my ship's going to come in. Right? It's an old saying, bulls make money, bears make money, pigs make no money. Okay? For every guy that made a million on Apple stock, there's a guy who lost a million on Facebook. Right? God wants you to work, invest, and give and be diligent. Proverbs 12, 24, look at the screen. Diligent hands will rule, but laziness ends in forced labor. Proverbs 13, 14, the soul of a lazy man desires and he has nothing, but the soul of the diligent shall be made rich. I don't know how much I want to convince you that God wants to enrich your soul. I can't do it anymore. Do you understand how this is tied to your soul? Your soul is your mind, will, and emotions. You're a three-part being. Okay, enough of that. The last one I saved so that you would go out with this on your mind. I've observed disciplined people over time. I've looked at my own makeup, 
And I'm convinced that disciplined people learn how to keep their emotions in check. So let's walk through this because you don't think this way much. But your soul is your mind, your will, and your emotions. Okay, it's not like some thing that's going to float in the clouds one day. Your mind has to be renewed, okay? You're here and you're hearing the word of God and you love God and three hours later you could have some vile thought come in your mind. The mind has to be renewed. It has to be washed in the water of the word of God. Your will has to be recalibrated, right? Romans 12, offer your lives as a living sacrifice. You might prove what is the good, acceptable will of God. And your emotions have to be managed, They are a gift of God. They can't rule your life. They can't even be trusted. We all wake up on a rainy day and think, man, I don't know what it is, but I'm kind of feeling down today. That's not a time to tell your wife that you're moving to Florida or California, okay? Emotions can't be trusted. Melancholy spirit, sadness. Let me give you an example. Anger. Okay, anger's an emotion. The Bible says, you know, be angry but sin not. Now, we all ha- handle anger differently, right? Some of us are spewers, some of us are bottlers. And don't look at each other, by the way. <laughs> you know, some people you think, but he's such a nice guy. He's the nicest guy I've ever met. And then, man, when he pops, he pops, right? You might not be around, but he's a bottler, so somebody's getting it at some time, right? Um, and then there's spewers. They, they're, they're just like constant, right? They don't bottle anything. When I was in Greece, the bus driver and our tour guide looked like they were about to fight each other. They were out talking in Greek. So I talked to somebody next to me who understood Greek, and I said, what? Are these guys going to fight? He's like, no, they're talking about the weather, their kids, the football game last night. It's just the way they are. Uh, Believe it or not, people in Greece have the highest life expectancy in the world, and it's not... It's not because they eat olive oil and feta cheese and all. They all smoke. So I I think they just get it off their chest. That's just my personal opinion. Remember God's question to Cain. Cain kills his brother Abel. God puts a mark on him. And one day God shows up and he says to Cain, Why is your face downcast and why are you angry? Now, if God ever asks you the question, it's not because he needs the information. He's trying, to, he's trying to help you process something. See, the idea was Cain's emotions were sending him a signal. His emotions were telling him, something's wrong, Cain. Something wrong. This is why reflection is so important. Gordon McDonald wrote this. He said, resilient people discipline their emotions and make sure that they accurately reflect reality. They can, be say, they can be sad, joyful, angry, or elated in appropriate ways at appropriate times. Resilient people see their feelings as a significant part of the wholeness of life, but they don't allow them to become the final arbiter of conviction and choice. Yet, these, they are quite aware of them, and they take note of emotion starts to dominate their life. Now, the beauty of this is Jesus, though he was all of man and all of God, Hebrews tells us he had like affections of a human being. Isaiah said he was acquainted with sorrow and grief, never more than when he walked into Gethsemane, and the Bible says sweated great drops of blood because the cross was before him. And yet Jesus had a way to keep that in check because for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despised the shame. He was able to master his emotions. 
Your emotions can block the truth from getting into your spirit. Something God wants to say to you. Talked about Saul last week. He's a classic example of this. Had Saul ever taken time to reflect on his life and his emotional world, he would have understood that how he was treating David and this blind ambition was going to ruin his life. But he never did. And he becomes one of the tragic cases in Scripture of a man who wasted all his gifts and talents, never worked his field, never, never became God's vineyard. Soul utterly bitter, utterly destroyed. It's not what God has for us. This is why we started with humility. Because God has given us a field. The field has the nutrients. We have nothing to do with that. We have nothing to do with the sun coming up and down. We have nothing to do with the rain. But there's that dichotomy where we have to work the field. And when we work the field, we, we have a sense of gratitude because God has endowed us with all those gifts. Paul said, there's nothing I have I haven't received. But then there's an idea of a job well done. We, we don't look at the other guy's field and say, oh, I outworked him. Solomon wasn't looking at the lazy man's field to say he was lazy. Solomon was learning one more time about being diligent to his field. So I'm going to ask you this final question. How's your field? How's your financial field? How's your spiritual field? How's your relational field? What is the condition of your field? And I pray you do that diagnostic. And I pray you seek God's guidance and begin to put the factors in place so that you can prosper. So that one day poverty doesn't come upon you. Listen, we're going to have trials. There's going to be difficult times. Everybody's been given a backpack in life. Okay, We all walk up a hill with a backpack. Sometimes the load gets too heavy and we've got to help somebody with their backpack. But I pray that backpack isn't because I allowed it to get heavy over time. Heavy with baggage. Heavy with the sin that so easily ensnares me. Heavy with the weeds and the things of life. You're God's field. And God so desires to look at you and see a vineyard and something that's producing something. We've all had the experience of going into a Kmart where the K is unlit and you know there's a light bulb out in aisle seven and the cash register doesn't work and the lady checking you out is on the phone. And we've all had that experience, right? And then we've all had the experience of going somewhere where everything was thought out and, and, and there's just great joy because things are done well. And that's God's hope for your life and your heart. I want to leave you guys with this. We are called disciples. That's what we are. We're not Christians. We're disciples. A Christian is a term given to the disciples at Antioch. But we're disciples. We're, listen, disciplined followers of Jesus Christ. That's what we are. We're people who have counted the cost in advance. To do what Jesus said, to take up daily our cross and follow him. Daily making that decision. And it has served me for 29 years. There are broken down walls and weeds in my life that i got to correct. But um, seed sowing has served me well. And i got to tell you this, the payoff is huge. The payoff is amazing. 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. Talk to the older saints. That's why we need the older and the younger. Talk to the older saints in the room. The payoff is huge.
down the road. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've inspired it. We thank you that it's true, Lord. We thank you for this fount of wisdom. And Lord, I I pray that we would work our fields, that we would hear your voice, that we would have an awakened soul and spirit, and that we would prove out our calling 30, 60, and 100-fold. In Jesus' name, amen.